Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. If you are new to the church, I do want to say welcome. I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've already got to meet a few of you this morning, which has been awesome to meet some new faces. Uh, but let me just publicly say welcome. Uh, if you're new, please go by our guest center. We want to give you a gift bag and just welcome you in that way and give you a gift. But we also would love for you to consider at least coming to our Intro to Harvest class. Those happen every single month here at the church. Uh, July's Intro to Harvest class, which is a class to learn all about our church, how you can get connected here, what's going on here, how, how God could use you, all those sorts of things. Uh, that, that one for July happens today, right after this service. So if you signed up for that, or maybe you didn't sign up, you just want to walk in, come. It's right on the other side of this wall. Just come right in. There's snacks, there's childcare, there's all that sort of stuff. And we would love to host you for that. I do want to ask you to be in prayer for a vacation Bible school. Uh, that happens tomorrow through Friday. I know that dozens and dozens of you are involved in that. You're serving, you're making that happen. Well, that's always a big event for us on the annual calendar. And we'll have hundreds of young people that are here that we get to influence and not just have fun with, but also edify them and encourage them and see them built up in Jesus. And we'll also, every year, we'll have young people that don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and they'll step into a saving relationship with him. So that's going to be a fun, fun week for us, but also a spiritually rich week for us. And we would ask if you're, if you're not serving, or if you are, pray for that. Add that to your prayer list this week, and just pray for our young people as they're here uh, 9 to noon, the next five days, I believe it is. If, if I'm wrong on that, I think it's five days and not four, but uh, uh, don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it's five, though. Uh, last thing, and then we're going to go to First John, and we're going to jump into our series, is I told you a month ago that you would have one more capital campaign update before our campaign ended. So we will give you a final report here in August, but I owe you one more, okay? So this is the monthly report, and we are done with our capital campaign August 1st. Uh, we will actually, as a team, we'll write some grants and we'll do some things outside of our church family. But with us as a team, uh, this ends August the 1st. So uh, to date, here's where we're at. A about half of you, there's 458 households, so 220 or 230 households or so. Uh, you've gotten the information. Uh, you've decided, hey, I want to make a pledge. I want to be a part of this. And you've stepped up. And so thank you for that. Uh, that has contributed to a little less than $4.4 million for all these projects that we have on the horizon for the next couple years as a church family, which is an unbelievable, amazing, to God be the glory number, honestly. Uh, somebody asked me this week, are you happy with that number? I mean, we have projects that could, you know, we could use more money than that. And I said, happy, like, I'm, I'm giddy, like, I'm tickled. That's unbelievable what we're going to be able to do as a church family for missions and even here on this campus. It really is amazing. So a lot of you have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Thank you. Keep praying. Uh, but there's been a lot of you over the last month that have received information. And really our two biggest chunks of people right now are either I got the information, I had my visit, and I'm just praying about, and I need to fill out a pledge card or, or kind of say, indicate, here's how I'm being a part. Or there's another, I think, 10 or 11% that uh, you're scheduled for a visit here 
uh, still this month. It just didn't work out for your schedule, and that's coming up. So uh, that really is, I think, 92% of our church family is in one of those boats. So if you're in those, that middle part, I would encourage you, uh, let us know what the Lord's leading you to do and, uh, and indicate that because we want the, everything in by August the 1st because we will make plans off of that. We will take those numbers and we will begin to plan out. That will serve as our budget to know here's how we need to deploy funds and all those sorts of things. So uh, if you are still praying, go ahead and do that. And then there's another 8%. There's a small amount, a few families that haven't received information yet. So if that's you, you can get it. But that's kind of the, the sum total of where we're at. We're looking forward to here in a month's time telling you here are the final numbers and here's what's happening. I even, I wanted to do it today, but I, I just... I have so much I want to share with you. I haven't been here for two weeks, so there's so much I want to talk to you about, uh, but there is an update with how we're deploying some of these funds that I could give you today, but because of the sermon and because of communion, uh, we're baptizing at the end. I'm going to save that for next week or the week after, but there's a couple really, really cool things that we're excited to share on, on how some funds are being deployed and some progress updates and those sorts of things that stay tuned. It'll come to you next week. I hate to be a tease, but it'll, it'll come to you next week and we'll get there. All right, with that being said, let's go to 1 John, 1 John chapter number 2. If you're new, let me just catch you up real quick. Uh, first of all, we have a habit here, not always, but generally speaking, we study the Bible here at Harvest book by book, and we do it verse by verse. We'll take a book, and we'll just unpack it little by little by little as we work through it. We're doing that right now with the book of 1 John. Uh, if you missed the first two sermons here, then you missed the introduction, which is basically... The end of John's epistle, 1 John, he writes and says, I want you to know, I want you to have confidence that you have eternal life. That eternal life being heaven, being a relationship with God. And then he goes on to say, I want you to have confidence, I want you to be certain of a few other things. That you have eternal life, that your prayers are heard and answered by God, that sin and the devil can't have you. He wants to infuse the Christians with confidence. And now we're rewinding the tape, we're going back to the beginning of the book and saying, okay, John, how do you want us to be confident? In what ways should we be confident? How can we know that we know? In what ways would this manifest itself? And so we looked at chapter one, this idea of a Christian doctrinally will confess that he has sinned and put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And now we're in chapter number two, where we will see yet again this assurance he wants us to have, and then some tests for how we can know that, that we can be sure. John doesn't leave us to flounder or leave it super subjective. He begins to press into the concrete and say, here's a test, apply this to your life. Is this true of you? And if this is true of you, then have certainty. So here we go, chapter number two. Let's look at verse number one. He starts once again with this assurance and this confidence that should infuse us. And he says, my little children, which is a term of endearment, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Now stop for a minute. What do you mean these things write unto you? What, what he just wrote, chapter one. And if you remember, chapter one ended with, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself, you are a liar, the truth is not in you, you don't know God. We do sin. We confess that we're sinners. That is a prerequisite to salvation in the gospel. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Insert name in somebody. That was, that was decent. I lied. It wasn't decent. It was, it was terrible. 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Insert amen. amen. All right, that was better. And you'd be tempted perhaps to think, okay, so I just say, yeah, yeah, I sin. Yeah, for sure, I do all the time. And he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins. So what's the big deal? I'll just keep on sinning. I mean, he's faithful and just. He's going to forgive it, right? I, I got this guarantee. I'll just keep on sinning. No big deal. And John is sure to say, time out. I'm writing that to you not so that you would have a hall pass to sin. I'm writing this to you so that you would not sin. I want you to be close and clean. I don't want you to have these active patterns of sin in your life. Don't sin, right? Now, do we? Yes. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of that. But the point is that Christians don't take it as a hall pass. Struggle against your sin, right? And I'm, I'm okay with you struggling against your sin. I'm not okay with well, I'm struggling against my sin, and that's code for I've laid down and died, and sin is just running over me and running rampant in my life, and I've stopped fighting it because it's too tough, and I don't think I can. I don't think I can get victory, whatever it is. That's not okay. He said, no, 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 struggle against the sin. Fight the sin. We'll get to some of those specifics perhaps here in a moment, but don't sin. I don't want you to sin. Then he says this. He goes on to say, if we do sin, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So I've got to take this verse to the next verse, and we've got to go theologically deep for a little bit. This is a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture. We have, those of us that know Jesus, those of us that sin even when we know Jesus, we have an advocate with God the Father, and that advocate is none other than Jesus Christ the righteous. This would be known in Hebrews language as Jesus our high priest who advocates for us or intercedes for us. And what this is saying is we have a legal representative, a legal proxy. We have someone that stands in for us. And when you have a legal proxy, what they achieve in the courtroom, you achieve. What they lose in the courtroom, you lose. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the one that is our advocate who stands in our place who intercedes for us, who makes a defense of us. <clears throat> now, there's this part of salvation that we talk about a lot and that we remember a lot, even in communion. This part of salvation that's on the front end where Jesus died on the cross for us. And he was our representative on the cross, right? He's in our place, taking our sin taking our punishment he is there on our behalf and he's there in our place but there is what's been dubbed as this forgotten side of jesus's substitutionary work for us where he advocates for us now he's our representative for us now in heaven an advocate for us now not just a dying savior but a doing savior it, you may not have realized this i pulled up the lyrics on my phone as we sang but we sang this and we'll sing it again at the end of the service we sang this this morning. We sang these words just a few moments ago, which is, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. What is my strong and perfect plea? It's a great high priest whose name is love, or Jesus, who ever lives and pleads for me. What is that saying? That's saying First John chapter 2. But you have this advocate, this intercessor, this one who pleads for you. And it goes on to say, when Satan tempts me to despair and he begins to tell me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, the one who made an end to all my sin. And I love this, that what it segues into, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, 
is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is putting in a beautiful, melodic way these lyrics that are communicating the truth of 1 John chapter number 2 and 1. That God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Meaning, when Jesus comes before the Father, let's say that your conscience is accusing you, or Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he comes to God with something that's true. John did this. Mark did this. Bob did this. And it's true of you. And he says, look, they're wrong. They're guilty. That there is a defense attorney. Satan's not the only voice in that courtroom. There's a defense attorney in Jesus who says, objection, your honor. Yes, he may have done that, but I am the propitiation for those sins. I died for those sins. I took those sins. No longer is he guilty of that. I took the punishment. I took the guilt. I took the shame. So you can't accuse him. You can't find him guilty of that. It would be unjust to do that. So God is faithful and just. God's merciful, but it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. Jesus in heaven doesn't plead for mercy. Oh, please give him mercy. Please just give him one more chance. I know he messed up again. Please give him one more chance. No, faithful and just. He demands justice. I took that. I paid for that. He's no longer held guilty of that. All those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus can know that, can have that confidence and that certainty, and you can kiss guilt goodbye. At least you should be able to. And the world, has, the world has nothing that looks like this. The secular world will tell you, how do you deal with guilt? The, the best solution they've come up with today is to go to your counselor, go to your, your, to your psychiatrist or psychologist, and to sit down with them, and for that psychologist or psychiatrist to tell you that, you know what, you shouldn't feel guilty over that. That's false guilt. That wasn't wrong. Don't feel guilty over it. Which is, which is a dangerous game to play when a psychiatrist begins to tell you that wasn't wrong. Because that's, that's not... That's not a sociological statement. That's a moral statement. If something is right or wrong, that's a moral statement. You're in religious territory there, which supposedly the psychologist doesn't really enter into. But when they tell you that's not wrong, you shouldn't feel guilt. That's, that's not the solution because it's very possible that that was wrong and you should feel guilt. Guilt is a great gas station is how I've come to think of it. Guilt is this great stop along the way to get you to your destination. If guilt gets you to repentance and guilt gets you to confessing your sin, then your sin is forgiven and gone, then you don't need the guilt anymore. You're at your destination, you don't need the gas station anymore, right? Guilt is a great pit stop along the way, but you don't want to live there. But many people do live there. So I either have to go secularly to the psychologist, and that doesn't work out well, or i got to go the religious route, and I have to earn my stripes. I have to pay for my sin. I have to do penance. I have to somehow make up for it, and that is really frustrating. You never know if you've done enough. You never know if you earned it enough, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is an altogether different way that when the guilt and Satan comes and he tempts you to despair, you look up and you say, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he advocates for me. He paid the price for me. He is the just one. My sin is gone. I rest in him afresh and anew. I don't have to feel that guilt and shame. That's how you do it. And he says, Jesus, he's the righteous one. He's the advocate. But then he says this in verse number two. Once again, meant to give assurance. This is a verse that is hotly debated, but it's meant to be a verse of assurance. That this same Jesus is the propitiation, meaning the atonement or the appeasement of God's wrath. He is, I know it's a big churchy word, the propitiation for our sins. And then this, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let me take a five-minute sidestep 
into some theological waters that I think most of you will get. Some of you may not, and if you don't, then just set it to the side, and we'll get to some practical application in a minute. What it says is Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And then it contrasts it. Who's ours? It's talking about saved people. It's not talking about the Jews or the Gentiles or a category of people. It's talking about the saved people. But not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this generates a lot of debate. And the, the simple way I would put this is that this is communicating a universal provision of propitiation for sins. It is not communicating a universal application. So you can misstep here two ways. One is to say, you know what, this is universal in provision and application. This is what a universalist would do. They would say, you know what, look, Jesus died for all the sins. He propitiated for all of them. So therefore, everybody's saved. Nobody will ever have the wrath of God. Nobody will ever have the judgment of God. Nobody will ever have hell. Nobody will ever have any of that. Everyone will, will always be saved in this, what's called universalism. The whole universe gets saved, which is not true. You read the, the Bible, it's very clear over and over again, that's not the way that it works. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in my name? Depart from me, I never knew you. Workers of iniquity. The Bible doesn't say that. There's also a way, so that inflates the verse too much. There's also a way to deflate the verse too much, and this will tick some of you off, but it's okay. I'm going to say it anyway. If you would be uh, not just a Calvinist, but a five-point Calvinist, especially when it comes to limited atonement, you tend to deflate this verse. And say, so you know what? No, 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 it isn't communicating universal provision. It's, it's not saying that. It's, it's not saying that he propitiated, it's saying like, all types of people or something of that nature, which really doesn't make sense of the context. When he's saying, not for ours, not for, not for Christians, that's who he's writing to, John's writing to Christians, but for the sins of the whole world. And what you have to understand is that universal provision is not universal application. And what this is saying is the Bible truth that Jesus dies for the sins of the world and that anybody anywhere can be saved if they put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But propitiation does not equal regeneration. The fact that Jesus has made provision and propitiated for all of the sins does not mean that the application or regeneration comes. That requires faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in my personal life, can I say that Jesus propitiated and died for my sins? Then, yes. Before I was born, before I even sinned, before I put my faith in him, Yes, but was I regenerate until I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Was I saved? No, I had to put my faith and trust in him for that to be applied to me. And in the same way, this applies universal provision, not universal application. What he's saying is a beautiful truth. The whosoever will concept. Jesus died for everybody. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. If you are saved, know that he atoned for your sins know that you can be sure of that know that he advocates for you know that it's justice for you to be forgiven and if you're not saved you can be that's beautiful that is these verses are infused with confidence and here's what he says in verse number three first part hereby we do know that we know him i know that i know right what a way to live life i know that I know him. Not just talking about I know about him, but I know him. 
the beauty of salvation, that we can have a relationship with God. We can talk with Him and walk with Him and commune with Him and have a relationship with Him. You can know God. He says, here's how you know that you know that, okay? You get all the confidence He wants you to have. So how can I know this? Because it's a really subjective thing. Like, I know God. How can I disprove if you know or don't know God, right? That's kind of a you, between you and God thing, is it not? That's, that's very subjective. It's difficult for me to put concrete parameters around that. So how could I know that I know? Well, he begins to give us some concrete things, some tests. And he's going to lay out through this chapter the three tests we talked about last time we were in 1 John 1. He's going to lay out a moral test, how we would live a social test and how we would love. We'll hit those today. Then he will eventually give us a doctrinal test on what we would believe. All of these work in tandem with each other. He says, first, I want to give you a moral test. Here's how you would live. And simply put, love from God and love for God would compel you to obey. Here's what he says in the end of verse 3. We can know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, I love this phrase, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he, Jesus, walked. So a couple notes here. Number one, you may miss this, because it's kind of a, it's not the headline, it's, it's the subtext. But you have to understand obedience doesn't lead to intimacy. Intimacy leads to obedience. And this is massaged in the text, and you, and you have to get this right first, or you'll really hurt yourself. He's saying we know him, so we keep his commandments. But you can know that you know him if you are keeping the commandments. He puts right in the middle of this that the love of God is perfected in us or is matured in us as we keep his commandments. He is communicating what the Bible communicates really universally. That if you want to obey the commandments, you want to do your best to keep the do's and the don'ts and live for God and live a, a close and a clean life, do you do that in order that you can have relationship with God and intimacy with God? No. You have relationship and intimacy with God secured and done, and then from that position of security and love, you then obey. Then there's a big difference. He's saying, know him, right? This is why Jesus would say, John 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is why the first commandment, you have a list of commandments you want to keep, start with number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? You have to start from love. You have to start from relationship with God. You have to start with knowledge of him. Otherwise, you'll just be white-knuckling your behavior. And I know a lot of people that are saved, but they think that their relationship with God, now that they're saved, depends upon their performance for God and that I have to do all this so that I can feel clean enough to be able to go to him and talk to him and have a relationship and ask him for anything so I better be real good all week and then maybe daddy will give me a treat. And that's not the way it works. That's not how it goes. It's he loves me. He secured me. He saved me. He advocates for me. And now I'm overwhelmed by that. And holy smokes, would he ever do that for me? And now there's this desire, no longer duty, but now desire to want to fulfill his commandments, to want to walk in truth, right? Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Not, don't walk in the flesh and then you can walk in the spirit. 
No, 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 no. It starts with the relationship. So you have to understand, when we're talking about keeping his commandments, you got to get that clear. You have to be able to understand that. Otherwise, you'll get off kilter real fast. And this is something that Christians have, it's not like we just recently struggled with this. It's been a long time. William Cooper, this uh, hymn writer from 150 years ago plus, wrote this hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. And here's what he put. There's a lot in there, but I'm just going to read one stanza. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice that changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. He understood it. He understood what it meant to look at Jesus, who is our our perfect substitute, to look at Jesus who pardons us and to hear that and to soak that in and from that to say, you know what, it's no longer duty for me to serve him. It's no longer duty for me to keep his commandments. Now it's a choice that I want to make. And I think at some level we all get this. Because if you love someone, it pleases you to please them. Right? Anyone you love, it pleases you. Not just you you want to please them, but it pleases you to please them. This is why we spoil our kids so much at Christmas. Because it pleases us, it delights us to see them giddy and delighted, does it not? And yes, we go overboard sometimes, but it pleases us to please them. This is why in a healthy marriage, it's not, well, I have to, and you have to, and you have to, and you have to, but it's, I love you, so it pleases me to please you, to put you first, to not just take the the commands that you give to me and do those, but to take even just the hints that you give, like your wishes become commands to me, because I want to please you, right? I've told you this before, I believe it actually was, uh, I guess, two and a half years ago now, almost three years ago, because I remember I was, I was, Preaching on John 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, uh, the week after my youngest son, Deacon, was born. And I use this illustration of I had just gone through labor and delivery with my wife, who I love dearly and is sacrificing in immense ways, like for me and for our family, as she's there in that hospital bed in McGee delivering our fourth son. And while she was there, she had these commands for me, right? And they weren't really optional, (laughs) She didn't ask. There was no nice tone. There was no please or thank you. It was just commands. Like, get me a wet rag. Fill up my ice chips. You know, that sort of stuff. Get out of my way. Shut up. You know, whatever it is. You know, it gets intense. And she was, she was a champ. Like, she's the best. Watch the tachometer and make sure that, you know, it's going. Like, all those sorts of things. But it pleased me to please her. I didn't say, like, you're so needy. Like, what is your problem? You know? Like, I've. I have some requests for you too. Could you do this for me right now? Give me a back rub. Like, that wasn't the case. I see her immense sacrifice and love. It constrains me, right? I love her. I want to please her. Whatever you say, babe, I'm happy. Anything, you name it. Sky's the limit. And that's the point of, like, the gospel. It's the point of why we'll have communion at the end of the service. To stop and to think about the sacrifice and the love and the demonstration of love that you would give yourself, that you would die for me, that you would, that you would give your body and your blood for me. And that, it warms my heart, at least it should, and it does something for me. And I see that love and your commands. It pleases me to please you, God, whatever you say. And it's, it's best if you understand that that command leads to life and that command is there for your benefit, not just for the fun of it, to to make you do something. But even if you don't understand that, 
There should at the most basic level be this heart of, I want to please you. You loved me. I love you. It pleases me to please you. So whatever you say, God. You want me to stand on my head? Fine. You want me to do jumping jacks? Fine. What do you want? Right? So I, in my study this week, just jotted down the first three, four, five things that popped in my head right away. It took me all of about 30 seconds. It's the first commands that randomly came to mind. And a lot of them were probably in light of what I had conversations I had that week and that sort of stuff. But I thought of, I thought of the ordinances, communion and baptism. We're going to have communion today. We're going to baptize today. I thought of those. Those aren't optional. Those are commands. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. I thought of baptism. You know how many, frankly, lame excuses I've heard for why someone won't be baptized over the years? And they'll ignore the plain command because I don't want to get my hair wet. I don't like it when people look at me. You know, water's just not my cup of tea, which is always a, a really paradoxical statement. And my response is normally a little sarcastic, like, do you take a shower? I think you do. <laughs> like, you know. And I get, I don't want people looking at me, or there are legitimate fears of why. I, I get those things, but at the end of the day, the command's the command. And there, I could go to the reasons of identifying with Jesus in his death and encouraging the church and all these reasons why we should do baptism, but at the most basic level, you asked me to, okay. It will please me to please you. If you want me to do that, I'll do it. There's so many commands in Scripture. There's, there's gray areas on some stuff, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's just not gray. Like, don't be drunk. That's not that complicated to me, okay? I know that you can, well, where is it that I'm a little tipsy versus drunk? or whatever. You can try to thread that needle all you want. Just don't be drunk. Like, that's not hard. I had a, this is probably my mind because of conversation this week, but I had a conversation this week, and the, the, the conversation literally went along the lines of, hey, we had a couple drinks, but I didn't realize it. I'd eaten earlier in the day, and my stomach was empty, and before I knew it, I mean, we were, we were sideways and stumbling around, and, and we were drunk. And it was almost like a ha-ha, you know, I made a funny mistake. But it's just... It says don't be drunk. Like, just avoid it. Like, don't, don't get drunk, right? That's not hard. Now, that may be a besetting sin or a temptation for you. It may be hard in that way. But the plain understanding of that is not hard. Be thankful, right? Be thankful. Well, you don't understand, you know, what a tough time I'm going through. If I have to read my Bible right, it says when Jesus took communion, like right before he was about to be betrayed and right before he's going to be taken, like when his soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death, like that moment, he gave thanks. He took the bread, he broke it and said, take eat. He gave thanks in the middle of his darkest hour. And I'm not belittling your dark nights at all. But there's always something to be thankful for. There's always something to find that is a little bit of sunlight in the darkness where you could praise God and thank him. Basic commands. Here's what he's saying. If you, if you know God, you have a heart to please him. You will want to keep his commands. Will you do it perfectly? No, he's not saying you'll do it perfectly because remember, if we sin, we have an advocate. If we sin and we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He's not saying you'll do it perfectly. But he is saying there'll be this heart in you where you will want to please him. Is that there? It's a question. That's, that's a, about as concrete a test as you can get. Is that there? Is that present? But then he says this. He goes on to give us a social test. Not just the moral test, but the social test. 
And it's simply that you love other Christians. Now, I'm going to hit this in passing because John will circle back around to this multiple occasions through the course of the book and most profoundly in chapter number four. We will hit this hard in chapter number four, but I at least want to cover what he covers because he, he's cyclical on these, on these tests. He says in verse number seven, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. So if you know him, you keep his commandments. Let me, John, give you a specific commandment. The, here, it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment, which you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. So time out. Pastor, if I understand it right, he just said, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but I'm giving you a new commandment, right? Is that what he said? Yes, it's what he said, okay? What does that mean? It's not a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. What he's saying is it's not a new commandment and that this has been around for a long time. You can go back to Deuteronomy. You can find the, the most basic two commandments, love God, love others. You can go find that. This isn't new. It's, it's not a newsflash. Jesus didn't invent that. But it is new, verse number 8, which thing is true in him, Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. More or less what he's saying is there is a newness to this and that the the energy you need to do this, the work of God in you to be able to accomplish this, and even the example that was lived before us of someone living this out in a profound way in the life of, of the Lord Jesus, like this is, it bursts with color now in ways that it didn't use to burst with color. Fundamentally, it's not new, but there is so much more that we have spiritual resources for us to be able to live out this commandment. And here's the commandment. He that saith he's in the light, verse 9, and hateth his brother, he is in darkness even until now. Now he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in the darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Now simply put, when he says love your brother, he's not talking about your biological sibling, although love them too. He's talking about your brother and your sisters in Jesus. He's talking about the new commandment that Jesus gave when he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one toward another. He's saying, if you know Jesus, there is going to be a love that you have for other Christians. Don't tell me you hate them and that you and Jesus and you know God and everything's honky-dory there. Don't, don't say that. It's unfitting for Christians to nurse grudges that are five years old against other Christians. Well, you don't understand. They, you know, they did this. They were wrong. They may have been. But Christians love other Christians. And that's a big umbrella term. It's one of the most basic commands in all the New Testament is to love each other. And under that umbrella, you begin to see very specific ways that you can manifest that. I'm going to give you 12 of them very quickly. But you can find that if you love each other, then you would edify each other or build each other up. You would, I love this one, you forbear each other. That tells you that love for each other doesn't mean I have fond feelings of affection for you all the time. Sometimes me loving you is me just putting up with you and kind of pinching my nose at you and, and being willing not to slap you, right? Like sometimes I'm just, I'm forbearing you, I'm putting up with you. That happens, right? But that's love, okay? Uh, you would provoke to good works, you would be kind to each other. You would be hospitable to each other. You would serve each other, forgive each other, pray with and for each other, encourage each other, bear each other's burdens, 
even greeting each other, just saying hey and hello and saluting and hi and how you doing, accepting each other. These are all ways that we as the body love each other. It's the most basic duty of any church member is to love the other church members in these ways. To love each other. John says, if you know God, you'll love other Christians. And not just other Baptists, let me be clear. Okay? There are plenty of Christians who don't claim the name Baptist. You love other Christians. You're not at war with other Christians. Yes, you can debate theology. Yes, you can have differences of opinion, or you could agree to disagree, or you could uh, prefer, I actually, just personality, all the rest of it, I prefer to hang out with them, over them. All those things are normal and natural, but there's a love for other Christians. What he's saying, this is, this is the best way I could say it. If you came to me and said, Pastor Mark, I love you, man, but I hate your kids. That's a non-starter, right? If you told me I love you, but your kids annoy me sometimes, yeah, me too, okay? I, fine. I love you, but your kids are making a mess. You need to control them a little better, you know, whatever. Fine. All that's good. But I love you, but I hate your kids. We're not going anywhere, right? You don't love me and hate my kids. That's not how this works. But somehow, Christians get off on thinking that we can love God and hate other Christians. And John says, uh-uh. It don't work that way. Don't tell God that you love him and then go tell his kids that you hate them. Don't do that stuff. And I'm not advocating for big, broad ecumenicalism and that there's no theological boundaries because we're going to get to, if someone is a Christian, there are theological boundaries that exist. But the theological boundaries he lays down are pretty broad. They're not super-duper-duper specific. They're specific enough to know if someone has the gospel and the truth, but they're not specific enough to know modes of baptism. I'll put it that way. And there are people, there are Christians that we should love. We are duty-bound to love, but even common sense would say we love each other. John says, you want a test, a social test? Do you love other Christians? I'll go so far as to put it this way. I am not going to be the judge and jury of if someone knows Jesus or not because it's above my pay grade. That's, that's God's job. But it is extremely concerning to me, and I hear this more and more and more, when people say, you know what, I love Jesus, and I love God, but I don't need the church, and I don't need other Christians. It's just me and him at home, our own private little powwow. I got the Bible, I got him, I got everything I need. And number one, if you have the Bible and you read it, it says you need the other Christians and the rubbing each other and helping each other. And how are you ever going to learn to forgive unless someone steps on your toes, right? Like, you need that. But number two, there's this basic idea that Christians would want to be around other Christians. That we would have what 1 John 1 calls fellowship with each other. If for no other reason, even if our socioeconomic status and our political views and uh, the, the way that we were brought up and our pedigree, if all that's different, but you know Jesus and you love him and you're pursuing him, and I know Jesus and I love him and I'm pursuing him, then we can be together. We should be together. I'd go so far as to say if you're a Christian, you should have Christian relationships in your life that you look at and say, there's not a chance I would ever be friends with that person outside of Jesus. The only way this is possible is because Jesus has brought us together because nothing else checks the boxes, right? But Christians love 
other Christians. So he says it's a social test for us. Now, I want to make one note, and you'll have to bear with me for a couple minutes, but hopefully it'll be practical enough to make sense and help you as we move through the book. John gives us this, um, really a test of sorts, it's very subjective, where he says, do you know him? Do you know that you know him, right? And I mentioned earlier, you knowing God or you having a relationship with God and a, and a vibrant um, a relationship with him is something that is, it's, it's between you and him. It's very subjective. But then he begins to give you these objective things. Do you keep his commandments? Do you love the brethren? These sorts of things. And John puts both those together to say, this is what would make a Christian. Some things that you're doing and are concrete, but also some things that are alive and are very dynamic and are not so concrete, but they're just, they're very dynamic in your life. And I mention this to you for, for two reasons. Number one is I want you to see what culture oftentimes does, which is different than the gospel. But I also want you to see how that would maybe connect some dots for you if you have uh, Catholic family and friends, because we live in a very Catholic area. So you have kind of two approaches fundamentally in our society. One is religious, one is secular. The very religious approach is objective, not subjective, and the secular approach is subjective, not objective. Here's what I mean. The religious approach will say, here are the things that I do in order to, to feel good or have right standing with God or to um, say that I know him. I am going to say I'm a Christian, I'm, and that could be for no other reason than I'm Italian and so I'm Christian, right? Um, or I'm Irish and so I'm Christian. Or I, I definitely go to church on Easter and Christmas, or I definitely observe Mass, or I don't do those things and I do these things and my good out tries to weigh my bad, but there's the objective things. But more often than not, if you ask someone in that category that's very religious, are you a Christian? They're going to be offended that you would even ask that. But if you press deeper and you ask, like, is there anything internal or subjective, like something dynamic, a relationship with God, communing with God, walking and talking with God, and that's lost. Like the spiritual vitality from the inside that's very subjective to the objective religious person is almost like, they may never even cross their mind that that's a reality, knowing God. And it's all objective. Now, the secular approach will be all subjective feely. It'll be, look, you have your truth, and you feel that, and that works for you, and that's good for you. Uh, and I have my truth, and if I feel it, and it kind of works for me, and it, it changes and morphs over time. It's very alive and very dynamic in my life, and it's alive. But if you give me anything objective, like, this is true, period, the end for me, you, and everybody, they're out. You give any sort of like, no, it's not just Jesus died for me and my sins, and I believe that, and that works for me. It's Jesus died for me and my sins. He died for your sins too. And if you don't put your faith in him, you're going to give an account to him one day. And if you don't put your faith in him, then you don't have him, and you don't have eternal life, and, and hell awaits you. If you do anything objective like that, whoa, they don't want that. And what the Bible will do and what the gospel will do is it'll do both and say there is this internal vitality, spiritual life of walking with God and knowing God that should be present in your life. But there's also these external objective tests that you should be able to test and those should be present in your life as well. Both of them should be there. And here's the number one reason you need to know this. Our title of the series is Confident Before God. If you go to the religious person or the secular person, 
and you start to talk about that you're confident before God, that you know that you know, that you're 100% sure, that you have assurance of your faith, both of them will find it wildly offensive probably. Because a religious person is thinking, the only way I can have any version of confidence is based on my record. Did I do enough? Did I pray enough? Was I baptized? Did I go to church enough? Did I, whatever the list is, did I do enough? And deep down they know, I haven't done it perfectly. So how could I really be sure? And they're viewing confidence through that lens. So when you say, I know that I know, God wants you to be confident. I know that I'm going to heaven. They're going to view that as arrogant. As who do you think you are? You think you're all that? Like, I don't know that you're any better than me. And, and you think that you've arrived, or that you have somehow earned this or whatever. And that's not what you're saying, because the gospel is not that. The gospel is, I know I'm wrong. I know I'm depraved. I know I'm wicked. But it's Jesus who's perfect. It's Jesus' record. I'm trusting in him. But the religious person will see that as arrogance. The, the secular person will see that as arrogance. Tell me you know something that works for you, fine. The diet worked for you, maybe it'll work for me, maybe it won't. Your religious beliefs work for you, maybe it'll work for me, maybe it won't. But when you say no, this is true, like, like, like two plus two is four, true. Like gravity is true, whether you believe it or not, it's there. This is true. They will find that arrogant. How could you possibly say you have absolute truth? You have objective truth. Who are you to think that you've arrived? You know better than my professor at Pitt. You know. Both will see it that way. And you have to know this. As you begin to witness, as you begin to talk, but you have to know that those lenses, those perspectives are not gospel lenses or perspectives. Because the gospel is I can have confidence. I can commune with God. I can know that I know him. Why? Well, fundamentally because Jesus has done this for me. I'm not special, but Jesus is. And the fact that he would love me and forgive me and treat me as special produces a love and a fondness in me, and it makes me want to obey, and it makes me want to love other people that know the same truth, and it makes me want to be around them and talk with them because we're on the same wavelength here, and it does something for us. That's what John's saying. He's trying to say, is that there? There's more tests to come. We'll get to them. But let's just stop there. If that's there for you, thank God and praise God and, and celebrate that. But if it's not there for you, then put your faith and trust in him. He's the propitiation for my sins, but not for mine only, for the sins of the whole world. If you put your faith and trust in him, I promise you, he'll save you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to dissect a little piece of your word. And I pray that something that is said today through your spirit would be applicable and helpful for every single life in this room, no matter how young or how old or how new to faith or not they are. And Lord, I pray right now in these moments as we celebrate you and we remember your death and that you would be crucified for us and give of yourself for us, that you would ratchet down these truths to our heart. That we can know that we know you. That we can be certain of you, our perfect righteous advocate. That we can be certain if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just, if we have come to you in repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that these behaviors of wanting to please you and keep your commandments, wanting to love other Christians, I pray that they would grow in our lives. We don't do them perfectly. We know that, Lord. But I pray that these basic instincts and desires that you put in us through your spirit would manifest themselves in more beautiful Christ-like ways as time goes on. 
Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us now as we respond to you. Right now, I want to give you just a moment or two to talk to the Lord. If you're a Christian in the room, I'm going to ask you to perhaps confess sin. Admit the commandments that you're not keeping and tell him that you desire to keep them. Perhaps thank him. Perhaps you have to lay down your guilt. That guilt's been haunting you and he doesn't intend for it to haunt you. It was a gas station. It was a pit stop to get you to repentance. Now that you've repented, don't go there anymore. If you're a Christian, talk to him. But if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I mentioned it earlier, you can. He died on the cross for your sins. I know that's, that's very subjective. How do I know? I mean, sins are an immaterial thing. How do I know he paid the penalty for my sins? Well, he did something objective. He rose from the dead to say, look, this is proof. This is real. And if he rose from the dead, believe everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, believe nothing he said. But he did. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And if you'll put your trust squarely on him, not on you, but on him, he will save you from your sins. He'll forgive you. He'll make you clean. He will give you eternal life. If you've never done that right now in this moment, I would encourage you to call out to him. Maybe maybe pray these words. They're not magic words. It's not a script. But maybe pray something like this. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. And I know I cannot forgive myself of that. I know I can't cleanse myself. I can't get myself into him. And right now I'm asking you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Clean me. Forgive me. Give me eternal life. I'm asking and I'm trusting in you and only you. Jesus, from this day forward, help me to live for you. I want to please you. Like I said, it doesn't have to be those words, not verbatim, but if you'll call out to him and you'll ask him to save you, the Bible says that he will, in fact, save you from your sins. I want to encourage you, if you're done praying, to take out your communion cup. If you're not done, then you just continue on. But if you are, grab this communion cup and let's take a moment. Let's remember the death of the Lord Jesus together. We're going to start with how Jesus started with this piece of bread. And you could celebrate communion with a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice. You could also have a full-fledged meal with this sort of bread and juice, but we choose to do it in a little way, symbolic way. Jesus said, do this. When you do it, remember me. Remember that I came. Remember that I died. Remember that my body was broken for you. It's the thing about bread. When you break it, you have to. You have to break it in order to consume it or have any sort of life from it, right? It gets broken and eaten and devoured so that we can be made whole. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I will be broken, I will be devoured, I will be consumed so you can have life, so that you can be made whole. And he sat down with his disciples there as they took the Passover and he told them as much. It's in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks in that moment, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance
this idea of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, all words you can use for what we're doing right now. I prefer communion because it indicates that this is something communal that we do together. But that was a Passover meal. At the Passover meal, there was a lot of symbolism involved, but not the least of which was the wine where Jesus takes it and says, this is my blood. Of course, the Passover, they're remembering the blood that was shed from those male lambs, those rams put on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over. He says, I want to take that. I want to leverage that. I am the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. My blood will be shed for you. The death angel and punishment can pass over you. I will shed my blood for you. Peter was one of the guys that sat there that night. And later on in life, Peter wrote these words. He said that we know, Christians, we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things. Things that are material, that corrupt. You know, silver and gold and that sort of stuff. Money. He says we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And right now as we drink this, let us remember that Jesus not just gives his body, but gives his blood for us. He redeems us with that. Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, after the same manner, he took the cup. And when he had supped, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to baptize here and we thought it would be very fitting to run back that song before the throne of God above. We just took a minute. We remember that Jesus was our substitute on the cross, a dying Savior. But now we're going to sing and we're going to remember that Jesus is our advocate, our substitute in heaven, and that he's a doing Savior. So I hope that you'll sing this from your heart and we'll baptize and be dismissed. This is Kelly. Uh, Kelly has her husband here, married just uh, a few months ago. And uh, some friends here as well. And uh, I got to get to know Kelly primarily through premarital counseling before the marriage and the wedding, that sort of stuff. She came to me a couple weeks ago after the service and said, I need to be baptized. I haven't been and I need to be. And I know Kelly and her testimony well. I said, Kelly, I'd love for that to happen. So today she's coming to follow the Lord in obedience to a command of baptism. And uh, this is a need for you or something that you've never done then uh, I would encourage you, stop one of our pastors, go by the welcome desk, let us know. But Kelly, I ask everyone the same question before I baptize them. Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died on the sins, or on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again? Then I get to baptize you as a sister in Jesus, and I get to do that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. They are excited for you, Kelly. They are excited. Church, I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless. You're dismissed. Good morning and thank you for coming today. We are so glad you're here. One of our pastors would love to meet you at our welcome desk after the service. And if you haven't already received it, we have a small gift and a Bible for you too. 
We'd like to take a minute to give you a bird's eye view of opportunities happening on our campus this summer. Our next Intro to Harvest class is today after the 1030 service in the cafeteria. If you're looking for a church community and a church home, this is the class for you. You'll meet some of our pastors who would love to tell you all about our church and answer any questions you may have. Snacks and childcare will be provided. Child dedication is the opportunity for parents to publicly commit to partner with the church to raise their child in a gospel-centered environment. This important event occurs twice a year, once in the winter and once in the summer, with the next one coming up on Sunday, July 31st. If you are interested in participating in this special service, please contact the church office no later than July 25th. There are a lot of ways to serve here at Harvest. Next Sunday, after both services, you will have the opportunity to learn more about each ministry and how you can help. Make plans to visit these tables next week. The 15th Annual Sports Classic Golf Outing will benefit the program at Harvest Baptist Academy. It takes place on Saturday, September 10th at the Lynx at Spring Church Golf Course in Apollo at 8.30 a.m. Golfers of all skill levels are invited to come out to play in this four-person scramble format. The cost is $100 per golfer, which includes 18 holes of golf, skill prize holes, a continental breakfast, lunch at the turn, and dinner after the round. Come and enjoy a fun day of fellowship and golf to support the sports program at Harvest Baptist Academy. Get registered today. Brochures are available at the welcome desk. We're beginning a new reading plan today called Appointed to Bear Fruit. This plan will walk you through Jesus' teachings and prayers in the upper room on the night before his crucifixion. The plan will be available on the YouVersion and Dwell apps. Lastly, don't forget our annual Vacation Bible School Week starts tomorrow. It begins bright and early at 9 a.m. and ends at 12 p.m. You can still register your kids ages 4 through 6th grade online. We hope to see you there. Thank you for spending time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media so you can stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.